right, friends, uh, welcome to the next episode of Professional Development, the podcast where teachers talk about teaching. Today, I'm very excited to interview my old friend and college track. We go all the way back to the St. Lawrence track and field team. Um, Whitney Cook is here on the show and agreed to be our first guest interview, which I'm, I'm really pumped about. So Whitney, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's where I was going to say old teammate, old yeah. co- like colleague through TFA. Yeah, we go. We go way back. Almost 15 years. A long time. A long, long time. time. <laughs> um, so, Whitney, why don't you talk us through just give give folks an, um, an idea of your teaching background. How did you get into teaching? What was the pathway like? and just go from start to where you are right now. Yeah, sure. So you'll actually probably recognize this name. Um, So Joey Webb was sort of a very little person. Shout out Joey Webb and Uh his wife, still in the ed space. Yeah. Um, So obviously we went to St. Lawrence and I had really wanted to pursue going to veterinary school and I didn't quite get everything done. I wouldn't say I was you know, the most motivated student. And so at the end of those four years, I was like, what do I do? I need more time. I need to take more classes. And Joey Webb um, had done his first year in TFA, I want to say, and sort of put that on my radar. And so I went into teaching thinking, this is an easy gig. I'll do TFA. I'll take some night classes to get ready for vet school. And that did not happen, obviously. Here we are Mm -hmm. 10 years later. Um, But yeah, for me, it was, how can I continue to be involved in science? How can I continue to connect with people while having this sort of additional goal? And that's really how I became involved in it. And so I joined Teach for America. I was placed in the Delta and ended up teaching in Stuttgart, Arkansas. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of how it all began. What did you teach in Stuttgart? So if I recall, it was biology. So um, I did 10th grade biology and a little bit of environmental science, natural sciences, things like that. They had a pretty strong chem department and physics department. And so I just sort of picked up sort of the biological sciences here and there. So you know, your anatomies, your size, but mostly biology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was super by the book teaching, you know, it was, there was a very sturdy, it was a public school. There was very in place um, curriculum for that pretty t- traditional teaching. And, and I was just really wading through it at the time. I don't know. I mean, maybe there are some people who felt like their first two years, they were just crushing it. I don't I think was- so. Yeah. I don't think so. I wasn't. <laughs> I definitely was not. Yeah. yeah. So tell me about, because I, I think it's interesting. We both, you know, were track teammates, went to SLU together, and mm-hmm. we both did TFA, and we both ended up in Arkansas. But I, st- I think that we kind of had pretty different experiences, right? Like Mark Tree is mm-hmm. kind of far away from Stuttgart. And when you're in the, for me at least, when you're in sort of the day-to-day grind, I felt like I was sort of so overwhelmed that the weekend like I wasn't really traveling around and like 
exploring Arkansas. Like I just felt, and I think a lot of people sort of felt this way. I didn't really have the mental sort of space and capacity to, I don't know, enjoy my own life <laughs> uh, in my first or second year. And I just, yeah, I was, I wanted to mention that because I feel like that's probably one of the reasons why it was tough to connect with other people, at least for me in other, other towns. Cause um, I think Stuttgart is like two hours away from Mark Tree or something, but I wonder if you could tell me like, what was your, how did you like living in Stuttgart? What was the transition like? Cause you and I are both from new England transplants to the Delta. So I feel like there's a lot of parallels there. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll just make a note. All the jingling is my dogs getting situated behind me. So I, I know dogs are okay. My dog is laying right in front of me right we now. We also so. have twin dogs, which we can get into later, but I would love to. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, the first two years in Teach for America in a new place coming from St. Lawrence, which I feel was super insular and very protected as well. You know, I didn't even know how to rent an apartment when I moved mm -hmm. down to the Delta. It felt as though I was in survival mode for two years straight. And mm -hmm. there really wasn't a lot of exploring the area or understanding the history and the culture. There was certainly sort of traveling to other people's houses on the weekends to hang out a little bit, but it was sort of this go, 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 survive mentality. And then the weekends, it was like sleeping and trying to detach as much as possible and then getting back into it. And so a super healthy work-life balance. Oh yeah. You know, I was just mentally really <laughs> in a good place during yeah. those years. Yeah. And, and I don't think, and I know people have opinions about Teach for America, but I wouldn't say that it, I, I would imagine that people's first few years as teachers, no matter where they are, sort of feels like that mm -hmm. because like I was mulling this over a few weeks ago that teaching is sort of this art. There's so much that goes into it, yet there is so little training and preparation and learning for teachers, right? Mm -hmm. And to be thrown in, even if you go and get your master's and then dive right in, there's still so much to learn that it feels like you're just playing catch up and you're just kind of trying to survive during that time. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I wouldn't say that I got to enjoy my life very much or explore the Delta very much. But what I will say is that I, there were parts of living in the South that I really loved. My community was super small, very rural. Mm -hmm. It had the duck gumbo festival. They were the self-proclaimed duck hunting and rice capital of the world. Mm -hmm. to them. And um, there were some really bright spots in that experience. There were people who really took me in as family and yeah. to look out for me. And I think that was... That was true for me too, yeah. Yeah, a really... Not the duck gumbo, but... <laughs> Although I did have a lot of friends who did a lot of duck hunting and I know Stuttgart is like, is a huge, uh, a hotbed for duck hunting, which is really cool. Yeah. Um, so then where did you, how long were you in Stuttgart? And then where did you go afterwards? So I did my two years in Stuttgart, Arkansas, and obviously didn't get any classes done to pursue. So at that point, I would say I had pretty much sidelined the idea of veterinary school. 
but I really mm -hmm. wasn't quite sure what I was going to do next. I, I don't know how you felt, but after my two years in Arkansas, I wouldn't say I was in love with the profession yet. Mm -hmm. I think I was feeling really drained and sort of like needed to recalibrate a little bit. Mm -hmm. I just wasn't quite sure. I knew there were pieces of it that I loved, but I wasn't really sure what was next for me. And so I was sort of looking for other jobs and was still really had sort of a bit of the travel bug. And so I ended up getting hired by a school out in California, sort of never having been to California, never having been to the school. Um, I was hired to teach in Watts at an all boys school out there. And so um, I did a little bit of work with the Arkansas Teacher Corps right before I left. And then I drove in a car with no AC across Texas in the summer heat, broke down in Arizona and finally made my way to California. And that's where I was teaching next was in. Wow. Yeah. What was that like? Uh, so that was where I really discovered my love for teaching, I would say. Okay. Um, so Verbum Day is a small Jesuit all boys school in Watts. So um, where is, I don't even know where so, Watts is in California. Yeah. So Compton is sort of right next to it. If okay. you ever hear about people talk about the Watts riots, that was sort of occurring in that space. Okay. And the school also used something called the Cristo Ray model. And so basically- Oh yeah, I've heard of Cristo Ray. Yeah. So there's one in Boston, right? There's one in Boston? There is. Yeah. I walked by it. It's in uh, Jamaica Plain, I believe. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it's so, I love this model. So the, because it's sort of a private, this was a private Jesuit school, they needed money coming in. And so these big companies would pay, essentially pay the tuition of a student. And then the student would work for them one day a week. And so they mm -hmm. do their classes Monday through Thursday, and then they'd go work at their law firm on Friday. Mm -hmm. And so I was super blessed to have some really amazing teachers in that school and really amazing students. And that was sort of where, for me, uh, it all sort of came together for the first time. And I think I was also able to catch my breath. You know, I really embraced the California lifestyle, did a lot of surfing, a lot of, yeah. you know, <laughs> not having any seasons. And, um, and for me, I still taught high school science. So still bio, a little bit of chem and yeah, that was just for me, this sort of aha moment of it all sort of falling together. And I really think it had a lot to do with having other adults around me who loved it and wanted other people to love it too. Um, what is, could, who are some of the people on Watts that sort of helped you discover uh, this love for teaching? Because I think one of, you know, what, I think one of our goals for the show is to acknowledge kind of how hard and how how difficult the first couple of years can be mm -hmm. um and sort of tell the stories of you know the commitment because i i think that's i think people leave the profession honestly because they think that um oh it's not for me within the, like and, and it's like oh i don't love this and so i gotta leave mm -hmm. um because people sort of i think people who are like us who have been teaching for a while we do love teaching 
but it's it what it's not always you know cherries and roses and i do think that there are sort of like moments and stories of professional discovery mm-hmm. of deciding to embrace um who like your identity really as a teacher you have people like marcus who have always known that they wanted to be a teacher and they're super fired up about it um and that's fantastic but that's not true for every teacher and i think that's okay um but i wonder if you could illustrate a little bit like what at watts who were some of the people that helped you kind of realize this about teaching yeah totally i think it's this case right of you'll always love it but you won't always like it mm-hmm. and i think that for me was very true of teaching in the in those sort of first formative years was i i really had started to love it but there were many days weeks where i did not like it at all mm-hmm. even into the middle of my sort of 10 years but so for me my principal, so Dr. Odom, shout out Dr. Brandy Odom Lucas. Okay. She was the principal at the school and she was actually the interim principal. Our current principal had sort of stepped away and they had sort of made a big scene about her coming in um, because she was not of the appropriate religious affiliation, I think. And she could not care less. You know, she was super opinionated, super supportive, went to bat for her teachers all the time and was also there to give, you know, really tough feedback as well. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, this idea of being a no-nonsense nurturer still holds true for me. And she was sort of the, sort of that for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I needed to feel sort of loved and supported and to be pulled through those times where I didn't like it. Uh, but I also needed someone to help me start thinking about this profession as a place where I needed to be growing continuously. And that's what got me really excited was that the idea that this profession is a space for growth all the time. And for people who are always wanting more, always wanting to better themselves, like this is an amazing place for that to keep sort of chipping away at it. And so she was super significant to me and um, provided both that, that like space for growth. And um, like, I can give a, an example. I had a really challenging sort of behavior management situation with a student and um, it had to do with copying. And I honestly cannot, you know, it was six or seven years ago at this point, but in the office with the student, right? Brandy went to bat for me, sort of laid it out for the student. And it was a very calm and like comforting experience for me to know that there wasn't sort of this triangle of trying to figure out who's in power and what's going to happen to me and the student. Mm -hmm. After the student left though, she had a lot to say about the way I had handled the scenario. And Mm -hmm. at the time, right, I was internally cringing and pretty upset about it, but it's what I needed both to Mm -hmm. feel like publicly I was supported and privately I was being made to grow in a appropriate direction. Yeah. That's such a, an incredibly important uh, thing for school leaders to be able to do, um, which I don't, I mean, that's probably the subject of an entire episode, but um, yeah, the, the ability to recognize your audience as a school leader and, be outwardly supportive and then 
be able to give honest and direct feedback if you thought that the teacher should have done something better. Um, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you had that experience. I, my, I've, I've worked with a lot of great principals as well, and, and I've had similar experiences like that, but I've also seen, um, I've, I've also had myself some experiences that went the other way. And I know that that is, um, that can be a real reason why, why people leave. Like if, if they feel like they're not going to be trusted um, by the administration, why, I mean, why would you stay? And I've had, I've had that happen to a lot of people. So I'm, I'm glad that, I'm sure that was a tough experience, but I'm glad that, that um, Dr. Odom was able to, you know, hold it down for you a little bit. Yeah. And I, right. I, I've taught at four or five schools at this point and mm-hmm. yeah, it runs the gamut as far as what leadership looks like at each of them. And she is obviously this like pinnacle of leadership for me, but there have been plenty of spaces where that relation, the sort of relationship that you need to then be able to give the tough feedback wasn't there. And so, um, yeah, I do not envy. And it's part of the reason I don't ever want to go into administration is because such a hard job. Mm -hmm. So hard. Yeah. I actually interviewed for an assistant principal position at a Cristo Ray school in Columbus, Ohio. And I was, I really love the Cristo Ray, uh, the work model. I've heard the students have loved it. Um, I think there's, I think there's a lot to learn from it. It doesn't have to be just Cristo Ray, mm-hmm. a little bit of a hot take. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really, I really like it. I think it was, um, I didn't get the job, but uh, you know, it's things work out. So you're in California, mm-hmm. fast forward, where, fast forward us a little bit. Um, where yeah. did you stay in California? How how did you get from California to where you are right now? Yeah, so the most condensed version. So I had a bit of the wanderlust. And so over the course of the next six years, I, after two years in California, moved back to the East Coast and I was working at a KIPP school up in Lynn, Massachusetts. Okay. Um, KIPP Academy Lynn Collegiate, their high school. I did two years there. I did two years at BC High in Dorchester, uh, teaching at their all boys Jesuit school again. And now I'm currently at Beaver Country Day School. I'll be going into my third year there. And at all of them, I was teaching upper school, uh, biology, a little bit of chemistry, maybe some A&P. But the sort of big addition for me was I started to pursue sex education as sort of a secondary uh, job. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So that's sort of where I'm at currently. So it was a lot of changes. And I think, and I don't know if you've had this experience, but working at schools is hard. And Mm -hmm. I would move on thinking, oh, there's something better out there for me. There's a better environment. There's a better way that people do things. And as someone who's been at multiple schools, it's just not the case. It, there's always going to be education is an imper- will always be an imperfect system. And it had more to do with me being able to try to change the systems that I was a part of, not say, okay, this school is not working for me. Where do I go next? Right. Yeah. And I, yeah, I totally agree with that because I think I, you know, for me, my, the school that I'm at right now, I really love my job. I love 
like the autonomy that I have over the curriculum. I like the people that I work with. There's stuff that I would want to change. There's stuff that I would see changed uh, if I could, but I, I'm definitely at this point now where I, I don't allow that stuff to frustrate me so much. Um, there's the, and this is something that I really had to learn, um, you know, later on in teaching, but like you, you can actively choose a lot of the time, not all the time, but you can actively choose to just not let certain things bother you as a teacher. Um, I do think, you know, that there are some, like I've had teachers experience, teachers that I was coaching, I've had people experience like unsafe workspaces and like blatant racism from students and administrators and that you can't choose that kind of stuff you can't choose to just look over but like if you have a problem with the bell schedule or if like the testing cycles like don't really make sense to you there are some things that and it took me a while to try to just adjust to say okay what's the bigger picture here why am i why am i teaching and on the whole, am I sort of happy with the teaching role versus some of the things that still frustrate me about the school or the district or, or whatever's going on? So yeah, that I think that's, an, that's been an important thing for me to recognize as well. Totally. And I think that our TFA experience, it made it feel like, I think my brain was trained to feel as though I could, I should care about all those things and try to change them, right? Mm-hmm. I think my TFA, TFA experience was very much like there are all of these problems and you are this like this right really terrible savior mentality of like fix go into your school and fix all these things yeah and it took a lot of unlearning about my like whiteness and my my educator position right my biases to understand and a lot about like my own mental health mm-hmm. and local control to say not only is it inappropriate for me to say I should care about and try to change all these things, but it's also probably not super helpful for me in becoming a, an effective and good teacher. That's so, that just a quick anecdote that reminds me of. So the Mark Tree School District is, they're the Indians. There's a lot of Native American uh, iconography and with a, at least Arkansas towns, I think just high schools in general. Mm-hmm. But Mark Tree is the Indians. And I would I remember this I, I don't I don't remember who or what or some of the details of the story, but essentially somebody I I remember sort of hearing through the grapevine that someone said that I should have done more to push back against the name of the school. And I just remember like scoffing at that and being a little bit resentful because I was just like, okay, yes, I disagree. I don't think that schools should be named the Indians or basically anything that is, I do think it's offensive to Native people, right? And in my classroom, I provided, I, I read stories from Native, I read firsthand accounts and I I taught essays and I sort of challenged the naming of the school in my classroom in humble and sort of direct ways. And, and the kids and I had good conversations about it. And I, you know, some of them decided that they thought it was offensive and some of them decided that, no, 
I'm not convinced and whatever it is, but I remember just feeling like whoever said that really didn't have any idea of what was going on. <laughs> because to think that like this 24 year old from New Hampshire is going to change the name of the school district that has been that name for decades and decades. Like, I, I don't know. That just reminded me of that. <laughs> yeah. And it all comes back to this locus of control and helping teachers. Right. And if I think there's something that young teachers can take away, it's that like, what do I care about super deeply? What is in my control and what can I actively do to, you know, help make those changes. Mm-hmm. So I totally agree. I think, right. I think, right. There's this idea that like, oh, as a teacher, you have immediate access to the principal and for me, right. To the board members and to whoever. So I should be making all of these significant changes. And it's much more about, you know, what do you care about and how are you within your space, within your classroom, trying to enact change? I think that's super important. Yeah. Yeah. So what are you teaching now, Wit? What do you like most about what you're teaching now? So right now I teach a bio course. I teach chemistry. So both intro to bio and intro to chem. I teach Mm a neuroscience application course for juniors and seniors, which I love. Um, But sort of my passion project is I teach uh, sex education and wellness to all of the grades, but I offer sort of workshops for senior students, uh, focusing specifically on sex education and relationships. So that's sort of where I'm at right now. And I've been having so much fun with it. Can you uh, dig into that a little bit more? I'm sure that's, uh, I'm sure you have, I don't know, probably a lot of signups for that elective. Is it an elective <laughs> course? It's, um, So the most recent way we did it was the seniors go through just a bunch of workshops at the end of the school year. And one of the options to sign up was to do that workshop with me. So that's how it worked. And then um, we do a trimester model. And so it's more formally done for freshmen and sophomore and they just see me for a trimester and that's Mm -hmm. more holistic health and wellness. And you know, I think that I saw a need, right? And mm-hmm. a really significant need. And also, I think something that I got to observe time and time again with high school students was their like relationships with each other, not just romantic relationships, but friendships, their relationships with adults. And it felt like as I was observing relationships and their ideas about relationships over 10 years, Mm -hmm. that there were some pretty concerning shifts sort of made by social media and made by the more access they had to things, the more I was like, oh, like, I don't know what's happening here. And so I sort of threw myself into this idea that I could hopefully help students get to sort of that sex and relationships thing by also helping them understand just like basic relational concepts. What were some of the things that really made you cringe that like, you know, you see, cause I, I feel like I observe things that make me cringe, but as you know, I'm the English teacher and mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, you have to sort of draw 
really clear boundaries. Like if a student comes up to me, I've had this happen, right? A student will come up to me and say, like, she like one example that I'm thinking of, a 11th grade girl like was basically in tears at the end of class. And I was, I said, what's going on? And she kind of unloaded and was like, I'm in this really toxic relationship and not to get into the details, but from, from what she said, it really did sound like the, the, her boyfriend or ex or whatever was treating her really poorly. And, um, in the moment I was like, okay, I don't really know what my role is, but the one thing that I do know is she needs to be validated (laughs) and sort of empowered to understand that like, if she's being treated badly and in a high school relationship that it's valid, it's really important. And I do, I think a lot of teachers can really easily dismiss the high school relationship right and say oh don't worry about it you're just in high school like high school relationships don't matter and I have said that before but I've um moved away from that pretty like a real 180 because they do matter a lot and that is their world right now and also it's not okay for people to be treating each other badly so that's like my that's my vantage point that's kind of how I I'm thinking about this, but I'm sure you have a much more nuanced uh, perspective on the high school relationship scene than I do. Yeah, I think I think that's totally accurate that, right, these students spend a significant amount of time with us. And therefore, it's unsurprising that with their sort of favorite teachers, they feel as though they can trust them and share them with things. They see mm-hmm. our faces every day. And so I think I've had that, I think many teachers if they're doing it right and if they're creating trusting relationships with their students that they've had this instance where a student shares something with them that the teacher sort of taken it back and it's like how do i how do i guide them through this space and i also totally agree that high school relationships and what they learn about relating to others that's the formative years are in high school right what i learned what i understood about relationships in college came a lot from high school and my experiences in high school weren't that great. And so my experiences in college weren't that great either. Mm -hmm. And so I think that for me, I kept having those experiences of students coming to me and asking for advice or hearing through the grapevine or hearing them sort of talk in my classroom space. And I didn't feel prepared to give advice just based on personal experience. So I did some digging and I said, is there a way for me to become trained and certified in how to respond appropriately to these sort of experiences and give adult, you know, young people the guidance they need? Because currently in the school system, right, it's either you go to a teacher who's probably not equipped or you go to the school counselor. And while I would argue our young people are leaps and bounds beyond where I was about going to see a counselor, I think there's still this like, totally. there's still sort of a little bit of weirdness for them, I would imagine, at least from what I've observed. And I felt like I could inhabit this space where they were still seeing me every day. So they felt like we had this trusting relationship. And I could also put myself in a space by educating myself that I could with confidence 
give them right the validation they needed, give them a lot of concrete ideas about what is a healthy relationship and what's not. And um, so that was sort of, so that's sort of where I am with that. That's, I think this is um, really powerful because this is the kind of thing, I, I know that it, it reminds me of um, some of the stress and, and the, the frustrations that I, um, my friends who like teach art or music sort of experience. Um, and it's, I'm not saying that sex education and wellness and stuff is the same as those contents, but I do think there's this constant tension between what has to be taught versus what should be taught. <laughs> and yeah, I, I can't think of many things now that I'm thinking about it. I can't think of many things more uh, important and formative for a high school student than understanding their own sexuality, understanding sexual health and relationships and how they relate to one another. Um, and that that does get sacrificed on the peer of standardized test scores a little bit, I'm sure. Um, what what would you recommend, what would you like to see different? Like if 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 sex education and health education were going really well across the board in a school, what does that look like to you? Yeah. So I think the two big things that I've observed are that, or what needs to happen is that one is that staff and teachers and admin, they need to get themselves educated, right? Mm -hmm. I think if I still have colleagues who are like, you know, what's a pronoun or are misgendering a student or, um, you know, are really squeamish around, you know, a student who's coming out or something to that effect, right? I think that as a teacher, I want to be authentic and I want to be myself, but I really need to self-reflect on my own biases and my lack of education and do some self-exploration. Um, I think that's super important. And whether that means formal training for staff, whether that means people going out and doing the work on their own, I do think it's super important for them to be able to um, sort of provide a baseline throughout the school, right? Because if I'm going in and doing these one-off workshops, but none of the teachers are sort of on the same page, that is super challenging and sort of devalues the work that happens in a workshop or a trimester length class. Mm -hmm. So I think that is a big piece. And so, for example, um, I did just did a workshop with the adults with Harvard Med Science, and we ran through all of that stuff, right? We had people who were interns who are fresh out of college, who are pretty savvy with all the terminology. And we had folks who were in their 60s who are like, I'm, this is all new. And so we sat down and we did a two-hour workshop and we walked through it all. And I was super proud of them, right, that they took it on themselves to say, I want to create a safe space for my students. We want them to feel comfortable and confident with their own identities and being in a space. Mm -hmm. And so that was super impressive to see them wanting to do that. I think on a more sort of day-to-day -day ground level change, there needs to be purposeful health and wellness curriculum across the four years. The most common comment that I received 
So I always ask the students for feedback right at the end of this, these workshops and the seniors, it was always, why did we just do this now? Right. Why didn't we do this sooner? Um, even with freshmen, you know, when I sort of survey them or do a pre or post sort of survey, the biggest feedback is always, oh, well, I haven't talked about this since sixth grade or, oh, no one's talked about this yet this school year. Mm-hmm. And it's tough because there are hundreds of, you know, pieces of content that I feel are so essential for the students. So I'm not saying that mine is more important, yeah. but the general consensus is, you know, there's a lot of stuff they're consuming now. There's a lot they're coming into contact with and they need to be equipped with the skills to, you know, grapple with it. Yeah, totally. Do you have a favorite unit or topic, something that, that you really love to teach that really is powerful and, and empowering for students? Mm. So, I mean, I know it's all of them, but if you had yeah, to narrow it they, down to one. I think, well, so outside of the sex education, in my neuroscience class, we use a project-based model. And so we do a series of projects. And the first one we do is um, substances, addiction, and the brain. Mm -hmm. And it's really focused on teaching them how to research and read peer-reviewed articles and things like that. And that project just provides a lot of aha moments for students, not only in understanding neuroscience and addiction and substance use, but also in digging into how do I back up the things I'm trying to share with folks. Mm -hmm. And I think that every time I do this, so I've done this project three times now, every time I do it, there's this theme that comes up for the students that is very sort of human, if you can call it that out of this science project, right? They, they arrive at this idea that addiction, right, is out of the control of the individual, right? And we go over the chemicals and we go over why someone would make these decisions that potentially harm their family or potentially put them in very risky situations. And so it gives them a framework to understand addiction, but it also gives them a framework to understand why why I'm staying up until three o'clock in the morning watching Netflix and mm-hmm. why I probably made this risky decision, you know, with a partner. And it, it really provides them with a framework to understand decision-making for themselves. And I think that was super significant to watch sort of unfold for them. That's yeah. Um, the stigma and misunderstanding around addiction is I think so rampant and and it's it's one of the most urgent and widespread um issues that i I can think of in our culture right now that's not it's just really not getting talked about like people don't understand it um yeah i'm that makes me really thankful that you're doing that um one one thing that I want to pin down because I always really like this conversation. Mm-hmm. I am a I'm very anti uh, STEM labeling. I'm very anti like 
I mean, it's fine, right? Like STEM, call it STEM. Yeah, you can make a whatever. You can make a lot of money if you want to go to space and be Jeff Bezos or whatever. But okay, <laughs> I'm very anti the uh, separation within education of like the humanities and STEM because I understand, right? Like I know that things have their own content and there's disciplines do things the certain way. But I picked up on this because you said that you taught them to uh, read peer-reviewed research papers. And I teach AP Seminar, which is, it's essentially a research methods course. And it, it's doing the same thing where the kids develop their own research projects. Um, and a lot of them are interested in STEM fields. And so they develop research projects. But I wanted, I would, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about how you see um, reading and writing play out in in your STEM classrooms and because um, I just I I feel also like that's a, a really important thing that people don't understand and, and sort of easily separate when it shouldn't really be easily separated. Yes, I I can't even tell you the last time I used the term STEM and I don't particularly enjoy it either. Mm -hmm. I will say I'm super fortunate to work in a school that is very sort of out not out there but willing to let teachers sort of do what they want to do and what that means is that often they hire people who have some pretty diverse interests and they want to bring it into the classroom so for example right before covid i was teaching so again trimester so it was the the winter trimester I said, you know, bio, the curriculum's just not working for me. I want to teach bio strictly through food science, mm -hmm. right? They said, all right, cool. Where do you want the space to be? We looked around school, found space with water, built out a kitchen. And for the whole term, the students were strictly learning through food, cooking. Uh, there was like a lot of cultural related stuff that we did as well. And that felt super seamless and supported. Um, you know, I think that the way I view education is it's not really about content at all. It's about, there are these sort of set of skills that we as teachers kind of identify will help them do whatever they're going to do next. And how do we imbue all of our courses with those skills? And so for me, how I'm teaching writing, how I'm teaching reading, how I'm teaching researching that should be replicated in varying degrees across all content. I don't think that science should have the monopoly on how to research and things like that. Do I teach them how to write sort of a lab report? Of course, right? Because if they're going to go take a lab course in undergrad, I want them to have seen it before. But, but I make sure I'm speaking with the other teachers in the 10th and 11th grade team about how they should be writing. Yeah. Right. And so the way they should be writing should be um, like pretty in line with everybody else's. And I think that's the way I hope that's the way education's moving. Right. Mm -hmm. That all of these things sort of start to overlap. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I think that um, I think there is a move in this direction. I don't I don't know if I'm ready to abandon the idea of like. Um, 
I definitely, I definitely think it's important to differentiate between specific content areas. And there, there's, there's a lot to, I think, cause for me, that comes down to like, kids have different interests and like, you can, yeah, there's, you are separating knowledge and skills in, in, in pretty specific ways. And I do think that's important, but I, I, have experience and I do think that there's kind of a slow move towards you know especially with with literacy skills right like just reading and writing skills um taking a step back across all content levels and saying this is what a top-end lab report needs to look like what's transferable about this piece of writing to your literature course or your history course or even your computer science course because if you want to be successful in any field, you have to be, you have to be able to write really well. Um, and so I don't know. It's what I'm saying is it's nice to see a science teacher who really does good writing instruction. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. I'm, I'm like, I'm ready. Blow it up. Get rid of it all for me. But yeah, you know, I think that I agree. There's something to be said for, right. There's content that's going to make students passionate. And so we want to keep that around. Mm -hmm. But I would say my most inspired lessons and units have been developed with non-science teachers. Mm -hmm. If anything, like I'm writing a chem curriculum and I, and we, myself and the other two chem teachers agree that they're not going to participate because they have chem degrees and they mm -hmm. get in the weeds and they're like, oh, you know, well, we need this and they need that. And I did that in college. So they're going to have to do that content. And it's mm -hmm. like, I don't know. No, uh, not necessarily. Yeah. And so. For me, it's like, I want to blow it all up, but there is something to be said for sure for keeping that, that content piece. Well, it's funny that you say it because when, when I was in Arkansas, we uh, transitioned to a project-based model mm -hmm. and I taught this integrated course. I, I, it was a, it, we called it BioLit uh, and it was an integrated biology and literature course. Um, and I would tell people about it and they would sort of scoff and be like, you can't do that what what do you mean um and my co-teacher jethro who's also going to be on the pod eventually um we had a we had such a great time with it and it it worked a lot better um than even i expected because you know it was you know it was funny about that course we read we read oh i'm so glad i feel so validated because i get to tell this story we Already. read this book called the hot zone you heard mm -hmm. about this book and oh, it's a, oh yeah and it's the story of uh an ebola outbreak right and so the project was literally the project was this would have happened in 2014 2013 14 the project was to develop a town plan if there was ever a pandemic that was the project the, the project <laughs> yes. what do you both know that we don't know so uh the idea right was like okay understanding how infectious diseases work understanding how um communities work right what what we wanted kids to do was to identify it was like part of the project was um, like resource inventory, right? So um, 
what spaces do we have in the town and in the surrounding areas to quarantine people if we need to? What are the local and official channels that we would need to engage in order to make sure that was happening in order to set up like a rapid response? Um, and some of the projects did not go as well as I would have hoped because, because the big feedback that my students gave for this plan was like, uh, we're not engaged in this project because we don't really think it's that realistic. And um, turns out yeah, <laughs> they would have been nice. It would have been nice for Mark Tree to have like a very sophisticated uh, preemptive plan for a local community response to, I don't know, some sort of pandemic that like, I don't know. We don't get very many told you so moments in teaching. So it's really nice. When I know, <laughs> I know, except I, there's, I'm not trying to do this because there's some moral and ethical issue. Like, I'm not trying to say told you so about the, about COVID because it's really horrible and, and devastating, but a little bit, I, I did a little bit, we did say so, but you know, it is what it is. I don't think the plans, even if, even if the projects went perfectly, they probably would not have been used by local stakeholders. So that's, you know, it's not the kid's fault. Um, all right. Well, so the last thing that I want to get to before we close out here, one of the things that we're trying to do with this podcast is just uh, provide um, the story of sort of falling in love with teaching and sticking with teaching and, and just kind of illustrate journeys of teaching, which I think you did that really well. And I really appreciate you coming on and, and talking about that with me. Um, but the last thing is the teacher celebration. So we're going to ask people to just name a teacher who really impacted them and talk about them for a little bit and just celebrate them. So who who has really changed your life as a teacher? Yeah. So this is a teacher that I've had, right? Yeah. It, it's. I think that's the idea. It also could be a teacher that you've worked with, but I think generally it's a, it would be a teacher that you've had. Yeah. So... I looked over our agenda earlier and I automatically, I already knew who I was going to talk about. So Leo Sacalarian, this, uh, you went by Mr. Sack, but his name was Leo, Sa shout out Leo Sacalarian. Okay. I don't even know if he's still teaching at my high school still. So Leo Sacalarian was the, he taught civil war and some of the other sort of um, elective, like history field electives. And he was, you know, this shorter guy, really burly, gigantic beard, long hair. And once we get into civil war, he would start dressing in his civil war apparel. And he lived in town. He raised chickens. He worked nights at the Texas steakhouse, roadhouse, whatever it was, would bring in blooming onions for people. And his course was, oh, painfully hard. Hey, I had to work so hard for that B minus yeah. and he was boisterous and loud and he cared so much. And I think he taught me two things and inspired me to do two things. One was that it was okay to work hard to just get a B minus, right? That the, the hard work was the goal and mm -hmm what I got out of it. Right. I worked harder in that class. And I don't think, and I think maybe one student, you know, got a really high score in the course. Right. But it, 
was the first time I had to work really hard. And it made me realize that the struggle was what was really valuable. And I think that's true of being an educator, being a student, if we can even throw it back to being a runner, right? Like mm-hmm. I will never be fast again, but it's that struggle that mm-hmm. is like super beneficial. And so I think that was so impactful for me. And I always think about him and think about that. And then I think the second piece was that he, and that was sort of as a student, what I realized as an educator, it made me realize that you needed to have a life outside of your profession. And it was possible to have a really happy, full exciting life alongside this very involved profession, right? It's not like I'm going to a desk and coming home and I can do whatever I want after. It does take a lot of bandwidth and a lot of emotion and investment. But I think that watching him and thinking back, right, as I'm sort of moving through these 10 years, it made me realize that it was sort of something that I could do long-term. It was going to be something that was sustainable. And if I could be happy in all of these aspects of my life, it was only going to make me a happier and better teacher. I think that was big for me. I love that. I'm so excited that you got to have Bloom and Onions as part of your, uh, your <laughs> Civil War course. I want one. Oh my gosh. It was... He was a character. Yeah. Um, they, uh, a senior prank, they released, chi- this was when they did senior pranks. They released chickens into the school labeled one, two, and four. One, two, four, yeah. Mm-hmm. And he collected them and brought, brought them back to his farm. He said, these are mine now. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, all right, Whitney Cook, thank you so much. I, this is, this is um, you're the first guest. So thank you for, coming on and agreeing based on a little Facebook post. Uh, and I appreciate the time. And this was, yeah, this was a really cool conversation. So thanks so much. Yeah, I feel honored.